thunderstorm always ends. It does not just thunderstorm forever. It always ends and it's going to be better. Um, so that's what keeps me going when it gets hard because I know that in this moment it's tough, but there will be longer moments of when it will be better. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Kelsey. How are you today? I'm uh, fantastic. Having a great day. How about you? Same. Are you ready for another episode of Campus Confidential? Yes, I think folks are in for a real treat today. Today, we have Lenise Tyree, Assistant Vice President for Auxiliary Enterprises at Howard University. What'd you think of Lenise? Fascinating person with an incredibly varied career, all of which have informed her leadership, I could have spent another hour listening to the stories and the background and the experiences that she's had. It was fantastic. I agree. And I think her approach of accountability with a very caring way of doing it is something that we can all aspire to. Yeah. And I, I was thinking as she was talking to about how refreshing her style is and her leadership and how varied it is too, and how the, maybe the stereotypes we might think for people who have a foot in the arts world, a foot in the corporate world, a foot in the education world, that you can be all of those things all at the same time. And that's, it was just really, really interesting to hear how she brings all of those parts of herself to, uh, to her decisions and her leadership. And she does it all unapologetically. Are you ready to listen? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, Lenise. Well, why don't we start mm -hmm. with how you describe what you do to your rideshare driver? Oh, yes. So I, I actually looked at this and I was like, that's a great question. Because <laughs> um, there was a time where I just told people I sold cars. Um, because if I said too much or like gave too much, it would be so many different questions. And then can I get a free ticket would always be the end. So I would just be like, I sell cars. And usually that would shut any rideshare driver down. Like, poof. Right. Um, and so now I'm thinking of it like if someone asked me now, what do I do? This is the quick synopsis that I always give people. I am all of the revenue outside of tuition and fees. Mm. And they'll say, ooh, what does that mean? I'll be like, your bookstore, your dining, um, and where you rest your head. I said, so, you know, your three, your three things that you need, your necessities and lunch. And they'll be like, oh, that's cool. I didn't know schools did that. Mm -hmm. And it stops all the questions really easy. That's usually what I say. That's an excellent answer. And I was thinking too, Lenise, it's a good thing I have not been your rideshare driver because I love cars. And I would have said, oh, which ones? Is that the S3 or the A3? Yeah. And I love that you start with the revenue. Mm -hmm. I think so many times it's, you know, especially for those, and Lauren, I don't know if you've had this experience, but those of us that grew up in higher education as mm -hmm. an industry in a field, mm -hmm. I think we feel this pressure need to start with like the education side or student experience side when really it is the revenue generating part of mm -hmm. campus when you work in auxiliary services. And I mm -hmm. think for me, because I don't come from the background, I come from the background of making money and making money is a good thing. 
we are not to feel bad for it. We're not, we are celebrated for how much money we make. You know what I mean? So for me, it's like, oftentimes I'll get the, well, all you care about is making money. And I'll look at them with a blank face and be like, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I, I do. <laughs> what, what am I supposed to not take from that? <laughs> You know, I have struggled with that, Kelsey, too, because I have felt, and maybe depending on the audience, that I need to explain myself and my role differently. And I wonder, Lenise, if you have found um, yourself giving variations of that answer to not the rideshare drivers, but others <laughs> if you're interacting, or is it or is it that answer pretty much all the time? It, it is that answer all the time. I'm not, mm-hmm. I, I will not stray from the concise and easy, um, even if it makes people uncomfortable, I do care about the student engagement. I do care about the student experience. I am the memories that they mem- they memory they they memorize about um, what happened at the student center, what happened at this event, um, how you know my dorm was. That's the things that you you memorize. Like those are the things that you talk about people, and I'm I am those things. So I just also want to make sure that we're holding up our financial end that we're responsible and held accountable to the university because we can't have all these nice free things if we're not making any money. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) I, so one thing I love about you is your steadfastness when you, just like you said, you don't change your answer. You have the answer, you believe in it and Mm -hmm. you stick with that. So give us a little bit about you who you are, where you came from. Is there a moment in time or a way in which you were raised or who you are that helped you get there or give us a little of that? So, you know, I'm a military brat. Um, I've moved every four years of my life up into college. So change is very easy for me. Um, and making decisions are very easy for me. So I'm very decisive. Um, I research very heavy. I'm a very, avid reader. So, you know, and I'm a high functioning autistic for me, it is very much so words, um, and the things people say and how I receive them. Cause I listen to the words that you say. Um, I'm defining the words that you're saying. I cannot hear the things that you're not saying. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So if you say, well, I'm what I meant was I will respond and say, but that's not what you said because I'm very about what you said and the words that you said, because I'm defining the words that you were using. Right. Um, so because of that, I tend to be very concise with my words and I have learned to make my language longer and softer. So when I was in college, I was very choppy in the way that I talked. I can hang out with my friends and, you know, talk the talk and have conversations, but my speech was very, you know, sentences were not long. I, I wasn't long winded as people would say. I've had to become that. So I find that these parts of me that really enjoy what I do, I love creating things and seeing people enjoy them. That's how I got into events in college. I used to throw parties and concerts in college you know, an introvert like me <laughs> who's very about like what people are saying you know, I became very well-versed in like contracts very early because that's what this (laughs) says. (laughs) It became, it became very much a thing. Like if you put a contract in front of her, she's going to be like, but this is what it says. Well, no, well, this is what we, mm -mm. did you put that in here? Cause it's not here. Um, and so it helped when like, 
I remember my mentor at the time, he was like, you know, what do you want to do long-term? And I was like, you know, I, I want to, I think like run an arena and like do this as a thing. Like I've, I've always wanted to do something like this since I was eight. Um, I saw this lady on TV and she said she was a event coordinator for the New York Knicks. I never, I didn't know what that meant, but I told my mom, that's what I was going to do. So again, I make decisions and that's what I'm going to do. And so my mentor in college, he really helped me kind of put me on the path. Um, and I, you know, I got a master's degree in HR. Um, I actually have a bachelor's degree in religious history and gospel. Um, so I'm the person that your pastor does not want to talk to. <laughs> and I'm, I am not who he wants to talk to. I've, I've read the Dead Sea Scrolls that we don't want to have that conversation. Um, and I knew I was going to be managing a lot of people. And with my personality of being an introvert, extrovert, you know, I have to turn on and my battery has to get recharged. I needed to have a balance. Right. Um, and I think the turning point came for me. <laughs> uh, it was a little Wayne concert <laughs> and we had put to, we had put these rules in place and it was the first time I was challenged as a person that was in charge. I had 1400 employees at the time. Um, and when I tell you every staff you touch was mine, like literally every staff you encountered was mine. So I was very about the green lights. Um, and backstage was just a bunch of red lights. We could not get them to listen. Like we just could not get them to, to conform to the rules. And I had to put in, in the middle of the show, some very stringent things. And this very large man walked up to me and said, who do you think you are? And in my mind, my brain said, you know, I'm the person in charge. <laughs> right. <laughs> but in that moment, like I was able to read the room and I said out loud, well, my name is Lenise. What is your issue? And like, that's how like that part of me changed of not being just concise, but also understanding that there has to be some softness to what I do, even when I know I'm right. Right. Um, if I need to, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not going to change the words of what I'm saying, but if I need to give you more explanation to it, sure. I'll further go past those words, but those words are going to stay the same. Um, and that night it was just, <laughs> I realized like I had to have that part of me that can negotiate on the fly. It doesn't have to be in written word. I had to learn very quickly, you know, how to manage crises that were growing exponentially. Right. And I'm 23. This is, <laughs> this is the first real job out of my master's program. I'm 23 years old and I'm running this thing. And I was like, Oh, okay. These are skills I got to pick up. Um, so I brought in the Disney Institute. I'm very about, uh, the work that they do and the work that they did at the time. And that really helped me develop the culture that I like to have with employee engagement and, and more who I am now. Um, I'm a bit like Kelsey. I can talk people into doing things <laughs> um, and they will have a fabulous time, but also be like, I didn't think that was what we were doing. It's okay. It's all right though. You had a good time. You didn't die. Right. Mm -mm, you didn't die. It's good. It's good. So when I met her, I saw it and I was like, that's why I'm a white knuckle and, and just hold on. Cause this is going to be a fun ride. Um, but those are the things that, you know, the experiences for me that kind of helped me get to the person that I am now. Um, and I enjoy me. I have to, I tell people all the time, like, you know, I enjoy who I am and I'm always working on who I am, um, and being better. I'm never going to be great. I'm never going to be perfect, but I just need to be better. And I think, you know, 
everybody took a little bit of that, you know, to try to be better, especially when you're aware, you know, it can go very far. Well, I'm figuring out that I enjoy you too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. You know, you were, you were describing these green lights and red lights. I love that sort of visual. It's really imageable. Um, I'm wondering if you, you you mentioned a few things that have been so important to how you, then you approach your own self-reflection in your work today. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just talk about a few more of those examples, you know, now in application of that experience to higher education, what kinds of red lights really, um, really bother you? And then what do you do to help uh, help stay grounded and use that longer and softer approach. Does that make sense? What things What things do you see as red lights in higher it ed? Does. And what do you do as a consequence uh, to, to, to work through those? So, you know, coming from a very corporate background and decisions being swift and fast and being able to see the, I have a, a distinct trait where I can see the fix of a problem a lot quicker than most people can. I will listen to you. And I'll be like, all right, I know what the answer is. Sometimes I will tell what the answer is. Sometimes I guide people to what the answer is so that everybody can feel ownership and what that answer and what that fix is, right? Um, I have learned more oftentimes in academia, I need to do the second part. I need for I need to help and educate those that will allow me to do so, what the answer could be from their perspective. Um, that has been a learning experience. Um, culture is something that is different from my perspective and where I came from. We had culture in arenas in stadiums. It was a bunch of sharks. There's a lot of type A personalities. We had a one band, one sound type of thing. Like every day, this event needs to go well in these various departments. That was our full intention, right? So to come to this side of the table, and the intentions and the wants and the needs are very different than a student being successful in completion. Because to me, that is the answer. A student needs to be successful in completion, whether that's an AA, a BA, a master's degree, a PhD, that is the intention. Um, so I struggle, and I've told, I've told my like people who know me know that I struggle with this warring of intentionality from different departments within a university or a a community college setting. Because I really do feel like at, at these types of places, it really should be one intention. And we all need to work towards that goal and whatever, and however we achieve that or help these students achieve that. Yeah. So that one has taken a longer, a longer view for me. So I tend to, I I'm, I'm known as a fixer. Every arena and stadium that I've worked at, I've been brought in because I needed to fix something, um, whether it was their processes, standards, whether if they even had them, if it was behavioral issues, um, money, financial, whatever it was. So when I was um, headhunted for the community college, it was because it was a new position and they were bringing in all these different pieces to it. They were going to open a center performing arts. They were going to open a culinary arts center. And they had all of these pieces that were going to have financial accountability to the external public, but no one who knew how to run that. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? 
Um, no one who came from an outside entity that actually knew how to operate a business and, you know, just, let's just do a P and L like, <laughs> let's just walk through that. <laughs> um, do you have a business plan? Those things were asked in my, you know, first interview. Um, and I had to take the long view with them. Some things I had to be a bull in a China shop and be like, so we can't do it like this because of these reasons. Well, we, you know, we don't want to change. I apologize. I, I don't have time for your feelings on this one thing. We're going to change it to this now. Now on this other piece, I will listen to your feelings and we can talk through them. We can process them and then we will change it in six months because <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to, we're still going to change it, but I'm going to let you have a, <laughs> let you have this, you know, this runway so that we can process through so that you can take the change in, in a way that's going to be more receptive for this. So it's been usually the culture and change. Um, especially if you're at universities that are used to operating at a culture that's very family oriented, which is so interesting to me. <laughs> um, like we're brothers and sisters and not colleagues. And I'm always like, Oh wow. When does the work get done then? <laughs> Cause siblings like to fight. Do the dishes get done then at, at a certain point? Cause we're fighting over who's doing the dishes and who's accountable for the dishes. When does the dawn hit the dishes though? <laughs> <laughs> like, what about that part? Um, so that, that, that has been the long view for me. It's just, you know, you spend more time with these people than you do with your families. I do understand that. But also there has to be a balance of your feelings and the work that actually has to get done. There's always going to be change. And again, like, you know, I'm a military brat. I'm used to change. And I realized that I accept it much quicker, quicker than people do than most people do. Again, that's culture and change and me just being like, so at home, if you had to change gardeners, if you had to change plumbers, would it be this difficult to do it? And I have to use those types of examples with people to get them to recognize, oh, this might be a little, like I'm making a little too much out of this. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and even with like managing their staff and holding people accountable. Okay. So if one of your kids did not do what you asked them to do, what would you do? Well, you know, I would do it. Okay. So that same processes, the idea of that, we're going to look at a colleague that reports to you and how would we transition the idea of that to holding this person accountable for something they didn't do? And how do we, how do we process that then? Because the hardest thing to do is to have somebody write somebody up here. And, and I mean, like, even just write an email of you did not do this correctly. <laughs> that is yeah, the, one of the hardest things. Why do you think that's so hard? It really, it really is so hard. I think it is the, the family, like the family dynamic. You know, siblings can't, <laughs> siblings can't hold each other accountable. They can tell mom or dad, Right. And so you have these, these groups of siblings who actually report to each other, but they're acting like siblings. And so this, this idea of hierarchy becomes, oh my God, some, you're saying somebody's higher than somebody else? Yes, on the hierarchy chain they are because you report to this person. I report to somebody. 
That person should hold me accountable if I'm not doing something correctly. That person should also praise me when I'm doing something correctly. You know, accountability for me has never been negative. It has been positive and negative. You know, you want to praise people when they are doing well. You want to tell them, thank you. Great job. Good catch. Whatever that attaboy that most people don't realize that they need or those that crave it. But also on the flip side, if they're not doing something correctly, learn how to manage through that hard talk. If it's a hard talk for you, because it's a talk that still needs to happen because you can't take on everyone's work. And I find that with some of my staff here, I'm having to walk them through the hard conversation because they're very used to being like, well, I'll just do it myself. Yeah. I've, I've come to believe, I think, let me, let me test this with you, but I, I've come to believe that in most cases, ac- accountability is difficult because we don't tell the truth. We don't tell the truth to ourselves about we're, what we're observing as a supervisor or leader. We don't tell the truth to the person whose mm-hmm. performance is of, of such concern. And what that does is make the softer conversation harder because you wait too long when you finally get the truth. Uh, have you discovered that to be true outside of higher education and inside higher education? Both? Do you have a totally different perspective on that. What's your take? So most of my corporate experience is entertainment. So whether it was running an amusement park right out of college at Navy pier or being in arenas, again, we're a bunch of sharks. So, (laughs) um, truth is not an issue for us. (laughs) Uh, uh, bluntness tone, may be something that we have to work on. Um, but bluntness and just being like, Hey, you messed this up using colorful words is not uncommon. Like (laughs) I think in colleges and universities, it is more centered around your feelings than the work. Cause I can tell you in, in my former life, I was never offended because I knew I messed that up. You know, now I might tell somebody, so let's just adjust how you come at me. Cause I don't think all of that was necessary, <laughs> but sometimes all of that, <laughs> sometimes all of that was necessary. Cause that's how bad my staff messed up something or I messed up something, which was very rare. But when it happened, I pretty much, I understood. So my mom used to call me jaded all the time. She's like, you're so jaded to like, you know, feelings at work. And I was like, cause you're not supposed to have feelings at work. Hence the jadedness. So coming here and people being so very into their feelings in front of the work. Like the priority is my feelings, not the work that I'm doing. I just, sometimes I have to sit with it. You know, it definitely, and I was conscious of my approach with my employees before, because again, it was employee engagement and I need them to be happy so that all those green lights happen. Um, and I would always take the brunt and my staff always knew that like, you know, Miss Tyree was always the person who took the brunt. I would never let anybody go at one of my employees crazy. Um, so coming to colleges and universities, I'm still very like that. Like, hey, you don't talk to them like that. You want to talk to somebody, you talk to me. And then I will take the pieces of that to discuss with them. But now it's the someone below you, below you. How do you then push them and assist them to have the talk about the work and not the feelings. Now, sometimes it is going to be about the feelings and I recognize that, but most of the time it's the feelings about talking about the work, like you said. Um, And that soft conversation, though it may be hard for them, 
happening in a way that we are keeping to the work and not yeah. the person. Yeah. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, my feelings as a supervisor, it's hard to acknowledge that I'm going to have to do something about this because it is so hard. And so it's my own feelings that I've got to get over <laughs> in order to actually have the difficult mm -hmm. conversation with a person that I've come to care about, but is not performing. Gotcha. You see, and my staff will say like, I'm, I'm about to smoke. Let's, Hey, give it to me. If you, let's talk about it. I, I prefer to have the hard conversation. So nobody's blindsided. I prefer to have the hard conversation because then we get it out the way we assess it and then we're improving upon something. So it's going to get better faster than us just sitting on it. And I tell them that, like, if you sit on it, I said, it's just, it's like resentment because <laughs> then you're watching that person not do the work that they're supposed to be doing. And you're silently dying inside because you're resenting yep. them and you're Completely doing agree. their work. Um, Completely agree. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's, let's exercise. Yeah. That. <laughs> I usually, when I've not wanted to have the conversation, that is my cue to myself. I must have the conversation because I'm avoiding mm -hmm. and that's a problem for both of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I completely agree. So Lenise, I'm with you in the sense of a lot of times I feel like I've solved the problem three times over in my head before the group's even halfway through talking about the problem. Mm -hmm. So in your current environment, how have you been successful with maybe peers? So I think we've talked a lot about, we've heard a mm -hmm. lot about um, your organization within, but we all know cross collaboration in those silos in higher ed are key, oh, right? Yeah. So, how does mm -hmm. your approach and your self awareness to getting work done work across departments? Mm -hmm. So, I use a, a really fun approach: is I throw as many employees at it as I can. So, <laughs> so it's not just me. <laughs> um, I have found this approach has worked for me. Um, if I break the silo in my area and it, in the last two positions I've had, it's been very, the departments do the department stuff. And I'm like, but don't you need to talk to this person about that? Well, doesn't this affect this team as well? You should have a meeting with them and talk through that with them. Mm -hmm. And then y'all can do that, you know, oh no, once a month, maybe twice a month. And then maybe I can drop in and say, hello, listen on to a few things. And just here recently, you know, we're having an, an, an issue with three departments. I pulled the meeting together. I'm thinking, you know, I'm here less than a year. They've probably all met each other and like talked on the phone or, you know, and when I say phone, cause I'm old, I, you know, teams or zoom. You know, they've all talked on the things. They've met each other. You have to, right? They were like, oh, well, can, can we have everybody introduce themselves? And I was like, because people don't know each other or just because we want to do it for just the, the good of the order? Oh, because I don't know what she does. Wait, what? Interesting. Okay, let's do that. Everybody introduce themselves. Okay, so let's talk through what each person does because <laughs> now this is going to be an education session and we're going to have action items because I didn't realize that none of you have talked to each other. This is why this keeps happening. So then I make a, you know, my staff says I make strong suggestions. I don't think they're strong. I just kind of say out loud. So this should probably be a monthly meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, put it on my calendar and I'll drop it. Um, so I, again, I throw as many employees and as many staff as I can at it because I can't be everywhere. 
I can't be, be the end all be all either. Um, my staff have autonomy in the, who they are as a role and then who they want to be, um, in that role, but also understanding you will talk to people. We will talk to people. We will invite people in. We will have transparency. There's nothing that we do that it, that we can't share with someone. Nothing. This is, and I, that I, I have a habit of saying it's just work. Like, this is not your personal life. It's just work. I have to tell my director of finance, you realize this is not your money, right? (laughs) (laughs) All money's green and it's not yours. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like this, this is not your money. You don't have to have so much emotional attachment to it. It's okay. We have to spend it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that's, that's how I do it. And I, there's sometimes where I have to make the request of, so I, I require this meeting because I want to know what you do, or I am missing this connection because who are you? Um, you know, especially if we have like turnover and whatever. And I try to make as many things as I can, but I do use my staff to help me break down the silos in different areas. I do. Yeah. I think that's smart and and necessary. I think one of the conversations that we've trying to have here thinking about is the future leadership of higher education and how are people being asked, asked to lead into the future. Absolutely. And if you're, if you're thinking of it in a succession planning way, that should always be the use of your directors and your managers. Right. Um, because at some point, you know, if I win the lottery tomorrow, somebody gonna have to take this position. <laughs> I'm sure it's not coming into work. That's for sure. Because I'm not coming back. Uh, so we want to put somebody that is well versed in the position, and to have staff that have not met anybody or don't know or you know unsure. That's that's not ideal. So you you have to cultivate your staff in a way that they feel comfortable with knowing the things, right? I have a director right now. She is very about, I need to know everything. And then I'm going to tell you what I want you to know. And I told her the other day, I said, so when you win the lottery tomorrow, what am I going to do? And she stared at me and she's like, how did you know I was going to win the lottery (laughs) tomorrow? That is not, that is not the focus here. (laughs) We both know if you want a billion dollars, you're not going to come back then all of that information just left and walked with you. How does that help us keep moving forward? You have to share. I said, so this culture of, well, if if I only have it, they can't get rid of me. They need me is the other piece that I have to fight with, especially with my long-termers. I call them my long haulers is that I, I can only be the one to know this. (laughs) So they, they create their own silo within their own department. And trying to, you know, break that silo down because that's not the truth. You know, the more people know, the better they are at their jobs, the more educated they are. And then if you get sick or you have something happen in your life, they can step in for you in that interim and not feel like it's overwhelming, not know, not feel like they don't know what they're doing. And they can have a good experience in that. So if they do decide to go somewhere else and apply for that same position, they feel confident, Right. So it braids down into like so many different things. And that's the things that I'm, I'm trying to teach the staff that I encounter and I work with, you know, every day. Yeah. So this makes me think, I'm thinking a little bit about your story earlier of how your career started. I heard you say when you were eight, you're like, this is what I Mm want to do. A very determined Mm -hmm. kind of 
path. And when I hear you talking about the way you handle leadership in your current role, what it feels like there's a string around leadership and caring for people more than the Mm -hmm. space in which you do that in. Am I following? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So talk about what gives you energy. Why do you do the work you do? Um, there's definitely who I am as a leader, regardless of what area of, of career I'm working in. Um, I took to heart very clearly that people don't remember what you said to them. They, they remember what you feel, which, how you made them feel. Um, and I've had some very hard lessons in that when I was younger. Um, and I wanted to make sure that who I was and who I am, that they are remembering and memorizing the best versions of me. And I would tell my staff, like, you know, I know you're going to remember the bad. I know you're going to remember the things that you didn't like how I said that you didn't like what I said, or you got in trouble. I know those are going to be the things that you remember, but I push you to also remember the times that I encouraged you, the times I supported you, um, the times that I was there for you, um, and my will to make sure that you knew that you were valued outside of this transactional work that we do. Um, I don't know other than my, you know, my two really rough experiences with that, that those were really my, my, my turning points of, I want to ensure that I am improve, I am improving wherever I am and in wherever I leave. And I guess that's legacy speak, but that has always been probably since I was 27. That's always been what I've wanted to do. You know, I still have for every job that I've had prior to this, I still have supervisors that will call me and ask me, Hey, Lenise, do you remember this? Hey, Lenise, how, how would you handle this? Or, Hey, we encountered this, blah, blah. Do you remember, can we, how did you handle whatever? That to me, that speaks volumes of what I was trying to achieve, you know, after learning some hard lessons. Um, yeah. Um, Lenise, you mentioned some turning points just a mo- moment ago. And earlier you were mentioning mm-hmm. um, the influence your your mother had on you. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, uh, in addition to those turning points, people who have helped you make turns. Um, your your mother, if you're willing, but also other people in your life mm-hmm. or career and what they meant to you and how they've influenced you and what how that's informed the way you the way you roll today. <laughs> um, so my mom is a senior master chief in the Air Force. Um, top secret clearance. Like I, there would be times where I'd be working for the president of the United States and they'd be like, so your clearance is going to take a little bit longer. Your mother has all this redacted stuff. Do you know what this is? The reason why it's redacted is because nobody knows. <laughs> like I just, I don't know what to tell you. And I'd call her and I'd be like, so mom, like you're, oh, we have a pep rally coming for Barack Obama. And I'm like the last one to get my pin. And she's like, well, just tell him to call me and I'll walk him <laughs> through it. <laughs> um, so my mom, you know, she's a tiny lady. Uh, Kelsey will tell you I'm almost six feet tall. My mother is five foot two and a half. Um, she's a tiny lady, very powerful lady. Um, but she is the free spirit of the both of us. My mother is very about what makes Laureen happy, what she's going to do, how she moves in the world. (laughs) Um, but she used to be in charge of men that were, you know, twice her size. 
And there would be times where she would hear me at work and be like, Oh, you sounded just like me. <laughs> She's like, I didn't realize you were paying attention so much. And I was like, yeah, cause you're, my mother was very fair. So one of my, I tell people, one of my frameworks of who I am as a person is that you, I, it has to be fair. I don't have to like it. You don't have to like it, but it needs to at least be fair. And when we're not being fair to people, that's when you're going to hear. So, okay, so hold on. We need to talk about this because this is not fair for either one of us. Right. Um, and my mother was very fair, um, regardless of how she felt about you didn't make a difference is what we're doing being fair to them. Um, so I get that very much so from her. Um, and then I would say, um, Dane Von Tobel from Andy Frayne. He's a vice president there. <laughs> He's my, my jolly old white guy. <laughs> uh, from Newton, Connecticut. Like we, we have some stories in the trenches together and he's always been super impressed with how I handle crises, but he's always underestimated me. And there was this one time, it was a Grateful Dead concert in Connecticut, in Hartford. Um, they flew me up from Miami to take care of the show. Because at that point, I, I had become like the person who could do the, I used to call them the, the terrorist shows. <laughs> and I'd be like, I want, I want terror pay because this is craziness. Um, and this young man was sitting behind the stage and he, he was in an area he shouldn't have been. And I don't know if you guys know, but I'm black. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a Grateful Dead show, it, it doesn't really have people who look like me. <laughs> um, and he was not a fan of me and my color. I didn't care about any of that. I had seen what the Hartford police looked like and the things that they carried. And my only concern was his safety. And I said to him, so, hey, you can say all the words you like. But also when they come, can you just go? Don't fight them. You know, I'm giving him the whole like soft speech spill. Now, Grateful Dead is playing on the stage. It's loud in there. And he is calling me everything but a child of God. Dane comes down and Dane's trying to talk to him. He's not listening. I was like, Dane, no, I got it. You go stand over there. I got it. He was like, no, because he keeps threatening. I'm fine. I promise you. I'm fine. And I'm talking to him. I'm talking to him. He doesn't want to listen. I said, okie dokie. And I walked away. And the Hartford police were standing at the top and they have wooden batons, not this, it's wooden. And I was like, so guys, just, we do need to remove them. Just, let's just be kind. <laughs> they hog tied him and walked him out. And Dane was like, I have never met an African-American who could take what you just took and still be concerned about his safety. And I was like, yeah. Because I know that that's not about me. It's not. He's been drinking. He might be on drugs. It could be a plethora of things. He could just not like black people. But also, I don't want him to get harmed because of that. Because he was sitting somewhere he wasn't supposed to. And that relationship helped me kind of take on the people who underestimate me. The people who don't think that, you know, women can handle different things. Black women, you know, have to be the angry black woman all the time. Because, you know... As we've gotten older together, Dane would always be like, you know, I was always waiting for the angry black woman to come out. <laughs> and I'd be like, so you do realize that all of us are not like that, right? Um, but also, she's there. Like, don't get it twisted. She's she's absolutely there. Um, but I have I know how to manage those parts of myself. I said, just like you do. 
Um, so he's probably the closest person to me that helped me change the idea of what, of who I am and what black women are supposed to be. Um, because unfortunately I am the representative for them moving forward of what black women are. That is something that I carry. So for any person who interacts with me, I have to keep that on in mind because you will take your interaction with me and say, well, that's how all of them are. I clearly know that. Right. So Dane was that relationship for me to help change a mind, but also continue to know that the work that I'm doing and who, who I am and who I'm representing is in the forefront of my mind. Um, I've had some, some other mentors, not necessarily women, um, because being a, there wasn't a lot of women necessarily in what I was doing, but there definitely was not a lot of women of color, um, especially in, in some of the roles that I was, um, in academia, it's definitely my, my former CFO, um, at Prince George's community college, her and I talk about a lot of things because she understands me. Um, and she gave me a lot of leeway to create what PG ultimately PGCC ultimately needed. Um, and I set up a succession plan that even if, you know, you never replace my position, the business operations can continue to work and they still do. Uh, and also, you know, she listens to me when I'd be like, am I crazy or is this like, what's really happening? Cause I can't, <laughs> um, <laughs> and she knows how to talk to the squishiness of my brain and help me understand because we, we have similar ways of thinking, but also, you know, she's been doing this corporately. She's been doing it in the County. Um, and then I have another, uh, colleague, well, she's one of my great friends, uh, now, but she's a director of emergency management. Now she's like a director of emergency management for a County. Um, and she helps me a lot, you know, with, you know, sometimes you can't save people. <laughs> I want everybody to be better. I do. And you can see, you can tell in my personality, like I care. Sometimes I care too much. And she'll be like, so you just need to let that go. Cause that's just, you can't save them. And I'll be like, but I want to, they could be so much better. And she'll be like, mm -mm, nope, let it go. <laughs> and sometimes I need to hear that. Yeah. That's important. Right. Especially when you are someone mm -hmm. that cares and gives, how do you mm -hmm. take care of yourself? So that makes me think, what do you do for fun? How do you take care of Lenise, I mean, we heard mentors and checking in with people for sure, but what's, what's fun for you? What rejuvenates you? Oh, I have the things. So a girl loves a spa and I am a <laughs> eight hour spa day type chick. I will get every nook and cranny cleaned, scrubbed, all the things and not even blink an eye. My mom will be like, so where do you, you go into the spot? Are you doing like a whole day thing? I am. And there is to be no judgment. She'll be like, okay, we'll have a good time. Be like, call me when you're done. Um, I also work with the national theater and I judge high school musicals around the DMV area. I enjoy it so much. Um, as a former high school musical kid, I just, I enjoy it so much. Like it really just, I love helping People figure out what they want to do long-term, you know, I love singing. My mother was, um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen Sister Act. My mother was that mother. She was like, you're not going to make any money singing. So why not just go work for them? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, but I'm a, an awesome singer. So it's like, 
you know, I helped these students and the national theater people who run it. They were like, well, wait, like when you can actually sing. And I was like, no, I can't. Well, can you help them like with vocal? We're doing these judging. Oh yeah, sure. No problem. And you know, I'm helping kids learn their active. I'm working with trans kids who are, you know, trying to figure out where their voice is going to land. Right. And where, where does it go from here? Once I, you know, start transitioning, like how, how do I manage that? Um, so those things bring me joy. Um, I love throwing dinner parties at my house. Cause as you know, I like to serve others. So I show my love by cooking foods. Um, I also used to run a culinary center, so I'm pretty good at cooking. Um, <laughs> so you sing, you cook, mm-hmm. you take people down at concerts. What is it? That, do. What don't you do? That's what I need to know. Um, I want to learn how to ride a horse. Um, <laughs> I wanted to learn in Girl Scout camps so bad and just never got back to it. I don't know what happened. Um, I want to learn how to ride a horse. I really do. Lenise, let me ask you, I was, I'm was. i glad you brought up musical theater because I wanted to ask, you were, you were quoted in a, a D.C. area magazine, Washington, D.C. area magazine, as saying, the arts help people to cope in dark times, which I love. I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit. You know, what, what has the arts meant to you? You started... Tell us that, telling us that just a minute ago, but how can it help people through whatever dark times they may have in their lives or we have societally? Absolutely. So my mother was a live music person. So that's that free spirit part of her. So I've been going to live music, jazz, concerts, plays since I was a child. And wherever we lived, we always went to those things, right? And that's what got me involved in it. And I connect music to moods. I can connect music to certain time periods in my life. Um, my mother can too. So I, <laughs> I will call her and be like, and I'll be like singing the horrible version of a song. And she'll be like, oh, I remember that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I was just kind of walking through that in my head. Um, so that's what music is for me. Um, and just culturally, I'm a season ticket holder of the national theater. I love going to see plays. Um, and I think that that article was from, I did a very hard pivot with our center performing arts at PGCC and I made everything during the pandemic virtual. I refused to close this down. I said, if nothing else, people are going to want to watch something. Um, and I had to go to our board because I, I didn't want to let go of my staff because it was about 15 people who would have gotten let go. And I was like, we can still do all of these things in a safe way and just record them and put them up and people will pay, people will donate because they're going to want to watch something. You, you're going to get to the end of Netflix. I was one of the first people who said that. I said, you're going to get uh, to the end of Netflix. I finished the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and that hard pivot for us I, I've never regretted fighting so hard, tears in my eyes for that, for my staff, because it was a pivotal moment for all of them to see that I was not going to give up on us. Also, this is a crazy ass idea, but it caught on fire because then everybody started doing it in the pandemic. You had comedy shows that were virtual. You had, you know, I, I think we did the ballet twice. Um, we did the symphony orchestra a couple of times I did comedy shows, but then everybody started doing it. Right. So we were ahead of the curve, but we were just a tiny, um, community college doing it. And I do think that people can listen to a song and pull themselves out of somewhere. But I also know that a song can also push you push you back down there too. So you have to be intentional with the music that you listen to. 
whether it's a favorite or not, knowing where you are in your spirit and your energy for that day and what's going to take you to the place that you intention. And I, I, I truly believe I can listen to a song and get to my happy place because it's going to remind me of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so true. I, you know, and your mention of the pandemic, which was such a shared moment of um, sorrow and uh, pain mm-hmm. and difficulty. Uh, my gosh, I went to, I probably went to more concerts during COVID than I normally do in <laughs> real life because it was what we had, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and the way film and dance um, signal to people that they matter and they're visible and they have. Uh, a place in the world that you, you know, all of those things. I just, I really, really appreciate your, your referencing that as a, as an important part of being human. So thanks for that. Absolutely. I believe arts and culture for if, if you're allowed to experience it, because I know it's a privilege at a certain point, it is a privilege to experience these things. Um, but if you can get to, which is why I made everything free, oh, man, I caught, I caught it for that but I made everything that first year free. And then we did a donation program after that. And I was like, because it's a privilege, you know, Wi-Fi is a privilege in some areas in the DMV. And I had to show data behind that. And, you know, I want them to be able to see what sometimes they can't afford to go see. Does that make sense? Um, so I was very conscious about the, you know, I picked my battles, but I was very conscious about the things that I was fighting for to keep my staff employed. Yeah. So, I love what you said of take you to the place you intend to go, Mm -hmm. which brings me, I kind of want to bring this conversation back to higher ed and would love your take on where do you hope higher ed is headed for the future? What do you see as the bright lights, green lights, if you will, uh, for higher education? You know, I think the green lights for higher education is making it simpler for student completion and student success. Um, there is the experience piece that, you know, we all curate in different ways, but I think administratively making it easier for students to complete in success um, will go a long way with college and universities being relevant whether you're HBCU or PWI, it has to be easier to get to completion. Um, whether that's financially, whether that's course credits, whether that's transferring credits, it should not be as difficult as it sometimes can be to get to completion. Um, cause there was a time where none of those things were deterrents to completion. There was a time where it was not hard to complete. It was, you know, <sighs> I happen to say it was free for a very long time until integration came and then college started to cost and then started college to start college started to cost a lot. And a lot of people don't know the history of that. College was free for a very long time. And then integration happened in a real way. And then all of a sudden it started to cost. So we are still paying for decisions that were made again, for someone like me based off the color of somebody's skin. And I'm the reason why this is now the, you know, very difficult process that it is to complete. I hope at some point those, the, that is really looked at in a real way and that it is not for profit. It is for student completion and success. Every business has to make money. Every business has to have a PNL, but the business of what you do is education. 
The business of what you do is student completion. And we can do that in a real way and still make money. I full heart, I full wholeheartedly believe that. Agreed. Yeah, totally agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just need the people that are going to do that work. People yep. like you. So Lenise, anything else that you wish you would have said you want to say related to higher ed? What keeps me going when it gets hard in general, the fact that I know there is the other side, it's not going to be hard forever because it does not stay hard from long. And I would tell them the thunderstorm always ends. It does not just thunderstorm forever. It always ends and it's going to be better. Um, so that's what keeps me going when it gets hard because I know that in this moment it's tough, but there will be longer moments of when it'll be better. Whew, so true and so hard to remember. Mm-hmm. That was the only one. <laughs> I like it. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. So Lauren, are you ready for some extra credit? Oh, I thought we were doing extra credit. Oh, no, we're going to do it now. (laughs) Oh, we're doing it now. Okay. Yeah. So after the conversation with Lenise, I was thinking, what's either a favorite concert, a favorite memory of the arts, a song or an artist that brings up good memories for you? Mm. Well, there are so many answers I could offer. I'm, I'm going to think of two things here. One is I'm going to give you the arts and arts answer. So my daughter growing up, she's now 26, uh, studied ballet. And I knew nothing about ballet, still know very little about ballet, probably didn't appreciate it. Hadn't ever, I think even seen ballet until she started doing ballet. But I really grew to love it uh, because she introduced me to it. And probably the most favorite memory is when we were, I was working at Indiana University. There's a fantastic school of music there uh, and dance, theater and dance. And they produce a uh, version of the Nutcracker each year, which is well known. They usually, somebody from the um, uh, New York Ballet comes in and is the guest instructor, et cetera. And so she, she danced in this with the IU School of Ballet. And so uh, that's probably my, that, but just ballet with my daughter's um, involvement is probably my most memorable, you know, really arts experience. Concerts though. Oh my gosh. I grew up in Northern Michigan in an era when outdoor concerts were a thing and these artists would go to these out of the way places, you know, back before a couple of companies owned everything. And in 1980 through about 80 seven, eight, I saw dozens and dozens of concerts, Ario Speedwagon, Cheap Trick, the Doobie Brothers, Bob Seger. I could go on and on it. You know, all of those concerts are just so, so memorable for me. I think both, both because I was coming of age and because I was at these $12 concerts, which would be 200 today. What about you? So for me, there's two, I'm going to go music things that bring me like either super comfort or joy. So one is any Billy Joel song. Mm. So my parents were divorced when I was younger and my dad would pick us up and we would drive to his house. And at one point he lived about 45 minutes away and we would just listen to Billy Joel 
both ways, all the way, can sing all the songs. So I love a good Billy Joel and finally got to see him in concert. Mm. Speaking of outdoor concerts, AT&T Park in San Francisco, amazing. Only the Good Die Young might be the favorite song. (laughs) And then the other thing that brings me joy is any 90s hip hop song that comes on the radio, I can sing every single word and it just amazes my husband every time and I just love it. So anyone who could sing those words with me, I'm here for it. And and who uh, who is on your Spotify playlist now? What are you listening to? Who are your artists? So I'm really into Dermot Kennedy and nobody seems to know who the guy is, but I'm going to go with it. Dermot Kennedy. <laughs> Including me. Look him up. Okay. You're going to know it. <laughs> How about you? Oh, uh, so my genre of choice, although I actually listen to just about everything, my genre of choice now is Americana. This Jason Isbell, Margot Price, um, Tyler Childers. It's sort of this Americana, Austin, Nashville. Uh, is it kind twangy? Of, uh, no, no, it's, it's, it would probably lean, it's country, but it would lean more folk. It's singer songwriter stuff, but with an edge, uh, drive by truckers, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, look it up. It's fantastic. I'll look up your art. You have to send me the name again. I don't remember, but I'll look that up. If you look up a okay. drive by truckers challenge accepted. All right. Till next time. Confidential is presented by Compass Group, produced by Corey Insko and Jen Fisher, with your hosts, Kelsey Harmon-Finn and Lauren Rollman.